Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And just a reminder, you can also listen to me on my new show, which is called The Social Workers, aired at the University of Albany campus in New York, WCDB-FM 90.9. And that's on Thursdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Or you can go online at WCDBFM.com. We archive the show up to a week. Uh, after it's been aired, and uh, that show has a slightly different mission, to educate and enlighten the university and also the extended communities about current social work trends and practices. Uh, last week, we had President Obama's sister on the show, Dr. Myers the Touring, but today we have a great lineup of guests here on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Our first guest is Dr. Susan Berger. Dr. Berger lost both of her parents at a very un very, very young age, and she is the author of the book, The Five Ways We Grieve, Finding Your Personal Path to Healing After the Loss of a Loved One. Um, our second guest is Dr. is not, she's not a doctor, but Lisa Oz. She's the wife of a doctor, Dr. Mehmet Oz. Most of you have heard of him, but she's uh, also the author of a New York Times bestselling book, Us, and uh, she explores the ways, the three ways that relationships matter the most. And our last guest, is author Ann Kramer. Her new book is called It's Always Personal, and she talks about why emotions matter so much at work. So first first guest is Dr. Susan Berger. Welcome to the show, Dr. Berger. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's great to be here. And I also want to give listeners a few more of your credentials because you are a Harvard graduate. You are a social worker, an organizational psychologist, um, and you are the founder of the Center for Loss, Bereavement, and Healing in Framingham, Massachusetts, uh, and you have a clinical practice and do all kinds of work. Um, also a graduate of Boston University, and so am I, so we do have something in common. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> we have several things in common. We have a lot of things in common, but let, we're here to talk about your book, The Five Ways We Grieve, Finding Your Personal Path to Healing After the Loss of a Loved One. Um, and your book is unique because we talk about and I know I've did a lot of work, uh, clinical work, uh, uh, on death and dying and talking about helping patients to be able to go through five stages of grief in order to accept their uh, mortality. But you talk about the person or the people who are survivors, who are surviving the loss. And the loss doesn't necessarily have to be the death of a loved one. It can be many other things. So let's talk about that. Uh, absolutely. I think grief is a natural reaction to loss. 
and we experience it in many different ways through divorce, uh, through job loss and career changes, through loss of uh, a home. A man that I was just referred to had his his fire his house burned down, uh, and pets who are dear to many of us and part of our families. So, yes, this model can apply to many different ways of adjusting to loss in a positive way. And you've talked about individual, Dr. Berger, individual and personal losses, but there are also kind of collective losses. I mean, you may talk about what happened in Japan as a collective loss for uh, for hundreds or for millions of people or, uh, you know, the tsunami or a hurricane or... Uh, 9-11, a terrorist attack. It applies to those kinds of losses as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, all, um, any way that people have been affected by a significant loss, a disaster, as you describe, have to adjust their challenges to change the way they live because their lives will never be the same. And that's what the message of my book is, is how do you change and how can you adjust in a way that will make your life more meaningful again and how you can find a new identity and place in the world. Well, I'm assuming because you lost your parents at a very young age that you had to go through this yourself. I don't know how old you were, but I would it would seem to me that this had an impact on, obviously, your interest in bereavement and, and the work that you've done in the book that you've written. Definitely. Um, my father died when I was 11. My mother died when I was 27. And uh, both of them were sick for many years prior to their death. So we talk also about the anticipatory loss and how that can ultimately lead to the grief that follows the actual loss. You talk about in your book the five grieving types. Uh, what do you mean by that? What are the five grieving types? When, uh, when we lose a loved one, we lose a sense of ourselves and we lose a sense of who we are. And so what I did was to interview many people who had experienced this kind of loss. And through the research that I did, I found that people responded in five significant patterns. Uh, and those were the ways in which they actually chose to honor their loved one or find a new sense of meaning and purpose and to redefine themselves. Uh, and I, I called them five different identities. The first is the nomad. The nomad actually is the person who has not resolved their loss in a way that helps them to move on successfully. Everyone who experiences loss initially, I believe, is a nomad. They are confused, they're lost, they're shocked, they're dis in disbelief, and they really don't know who they are or where they are. After, however, hopefully a period of time, they can be among those who choose the four different paths, which are all very positive ways of adapting to losses. Before we go on to the positive paths, can we talk, give an example of a nomad, somebody who doesn't really, isn't able to uh, adapt uh, to losing whatever the loss is, their job, their loved one, their mm -hmm. marriage. Mm -hmm. what, is an, what, what would that person be doing? What, you know, in terms of their behavior, what would you see them doing if they're still well, a nomad? Sure. Uh, initially, uh, a lot of people who have lost loved ones certainly are extremely emotional, confused. They don't believe this has happened. Um, a, a couple that just lost their 23-year-old son is in shock. 
they can't believe it. This was uh, a month ago. Uh, a person who lost their job, a man, men particularly who are so highly identified with uh, their careers, if they are laid off or they retire, they sort of don't know what to do with themselves. They literally wander around. They're searching for a new way of structuring their lives and finding some sense of purpose. Right. So, And if they don't do that and they just continue to not be able to, well, in layman's terms, get a grip and be able to, uh, you know, go through the process of grief, then they just continue sort of wandering around. Is that what you're saying emotionally well, and actually in reality? Let me give you an example yeah. from my own experience, and this is part of what motivated me to write the book. I, um, When I was about to turn 50, I realized that I myself wasn't satisfied with my life, didn't know exactly um, what I should be doing. I'd always wanted to make a difference in the world. And um, what happened was basically that I found myself in an identity crisis, and it took me a while to figure out many, many years later that I had not fully resolved the loss of my mother in my 20s. And so what the nomad can struggle with is the fact that it, the loss can be with you and the sense of not really fully resolving that loss is really a lifelong um, grief. And so, so, Dr. Berger, what do we do? Because, I mean, you're a therapist, you're a, you're a social worker, uh, you have a lot of experience in, in dealing and working with people who have suffered from losses, and yet you weren't able to realize until you were 50 years old that the loss of your parents was still affecting the way you were uh, making choices in your life and they weren't good ones for you. So what does the average person do? Do they have to wait till 50? I mean, I, I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Really. I, I certainly hope not. I do think that people need to be able to to have uh, to talk to others who've had similar experiences so they can learn from them from others about how they have adapted to their lives um, they don't have to wait till they're um, um, they're uh, as old as I was but the fact is that as if you have lost something significant or someone significant you will find that it does reverberate in your life over the course of years that doesn't mean that you can't be living fully and successfully uh, in between, but you will always have reminders, the anniversary, the birthday, the, the sense that other people will talk about still having their parents and you know that you no longer do. Those things are not necessarily going to uh, impair your functioning, but they do require that you pay attention to them. So you can go to therapy, you can go to a support group, you can talk to others about how you're feeling. I think that you said the key word, pay attention to it. Don't deny the loss. Don't pretend it didn't happen because underlying that it's going to affect the, and I go back to the choices that you make in your life, whether it's family, work, play, whatever it is. Um, we should move on to the, the other, the more, I guess, the healthy ways of dealing, or they can be healthy, but I'm not so sure they can always be healthy too. The next one you have is the memorialists. Who are they and what do they do and how do they respond to, to, to grief and loss? The memorialists are people who want to preserve the memory of their loved ones. They're the ones who write poems on an annual basis. One woman lost her daughter, uh, and she wrote a poem to her daughter every year to commemorate her loss. A man, this is a great example of a man who lost his father, 
and never fully resolved it. But 16 years later, he woke up from a dream and realized that he had never said goodbye to his dad, and he wrote a song saying, I never said goodbye. Um, memorial. The greatest example of a memorialist is the um, prince who built the Taj Mahal to commemorate the love that he had for his wife. Well, no and one's going to do that set up me, foundation. for most of us. But Pardon me? I said no one's going to do that for me or for most of us, but that's certainly that's, that's a but prime they can example. Set up, they can set up funds. They can have foundations. They can... Um, uh, create beautiful objects that remind them of their loved one and share that with the world. That, uh, and I think a lot of people do that. Some and people that I know, actually uh, friends uh, who had a, uh, oh, his wife died at a, in an early age uh, from cancer, and he did exactly that and was building memorials to her in his native country. But to some extent, I think it got out of hand. I mean, I think that, the, you know, it became, that became his obsession rather than his way of dealing and grieving. And it wasn't so healthy necessarily because he was just totally focused on building memorials to his, his, his deceased wife rather than kind of focusing on the here and now. You're um, right. And I think that's why I do describe in my book that each of these paths has strengths and weaknesses. And a person as like the man that you're describing is probably not resolved in his grief. He hasn't been able to um, to move on. He's still holding on to the past, which is one of the things that I think happens to people when they lose a loved one. Their sense of their orientation toward time can be the focusing on the past, the present, or the future. Obviously, and next we have Dr. Berger because we only have a couple minutes left. Oh, okay. uh, obviously, I, I recommend that uh, to you know really touch on this in depth. We need to get uh, Dr. Berger's book, the, which is the Berger Model: The Five Ways We Grieve, Finding Your Personal Path to Healing After the Loss of a Loved One. Uh, it's out in paperback. You can buy it at online bookstores everywhere. But We'll kind of go through the, the normalizers, the activists, and the seekers. So in a couple minutes, how are we going to kind of wrap this up uh, with the, the last three ways that, uh, of uh, ways of dealing with grief or loss? Okay, the normalizers are the people who want to uh, replicate the kind of experience they had with their loved one. They're the, the pe- people who remarry because they had a wonderful marriage. They're the people who sometimes didn't have the experience that they would have liked, and they tried to recreate that in their own lives. Activists, um, what do they do? Activists are people who are the walkathon people, the people who volunteer for the, in, in, um, for the cause that perhaps their loved one died of. They're the ones who want to make a difference in the world, as I did after I felt that my father had died, and I, I knew that my life was mortal and that time was important and that connecting to others was, was part of what drove, drove me. The seekers, and the last we have is the seekers. Seekers are the people who, as you can imagine, are the ones who are more spiritually oriented. They're looking for meaning. They're wondering about what life is all about and how do they connect to the universe and where do they fit in the world. And they choose more spiritual paths of of praying or pursuing spiritual practices such as Buddhism or, you know, yoga, 
Um, sometimes that goes to an extreme also of um, changing religions and becoming members of a cult. Um, but And they're not the greatest number of, of people who choose paths. Most people who are survivors of loss are those who are memorialists, normalizers, or activists. Great. Thanks All of so whom much. find well, great this is, There's so much to talk about. I mean, and there's so much, obviously, more in the book and the interviews that you've done. The Five Ways We Grieve, Dr. Susan Berger, Finding Your Personal Path to Healing After the Loss of a Loved One, or simply any kind of a loss, really. The five stages um, uh, or the five grieving types that emerge come from all many kinds of losses. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much, Catherine. Great to have you. Coming up next is Lisa Oz. Uh, she's the wife of uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz, and she's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Us. And she, in her book, she talks about exploring the three relationships that matter most. Think about that. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv. Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And this morning I have with me Lisa Oz. She's the wife of Dr. Mehmet Oz. She's an author, uh, author of a New York Times bestselling book, Us. And in this book she explores the three relationships that matter most. But uh, Lisa's not only an author, a New York Times bestselling author. She and a wife and a mother of four children living in New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey housewife, I guess, a writer, <laughs> producer, and entrepreneur. And as Lisa told me earlier, you know, she wrote this book. She's done New York Times bestseller. She's on to next. So she's ready to talk about whatever I want to talk about. Welcome to the show, Lisa. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. 
Great to have you on. Okay, relation. I still want to stick with the book, though. Relationships, yeah, relationships. I mean, I'm always struggling with my relationships, and obviously with my boyfriend partner of 20 years. That's the primary relationship. But you talk about three different kinds of relationships. The most important ones. What are they? Well, the for me, the the primary relationships are our relationship with ourself, which is the foundation of all of our relationships, our relationship with other people, and then our relationship with the divine, however we choose to interpret that concept of the divine, something bigger than ourselves, something that gives our life meaning and purpose. But I was just going to say, with you and your boyfriend... I think we always struggle with relationships because they're not they're not supposed to be static. They're not supposed to be something we check off in a in a, a list of to-do things. I think that relationships are living, growing, breathing entities and like a garden, they they can blossom or they can wither and die. So the struggle is part of the growth. And we change in those relationships, and it's an opportunity for us to become our fullest self. So it's a good thing that you're still together after 20 years and growing and learning and struggling. Still crazy after all these years, that's what I keep saying. But, uh, but you said something, and I think that, like, it, it, which is, I think is important, because I think people get into relationships and they tend to stagnate and think that, well, once we kind of get over this hurdle, everything will be fine. And they're not always willing, as you say, it's, it's always evolving. Relationships are evolving, and they can go in the right direction, or they can go down the tubes, or they can be static, which is not a good thing either. Right. Well, I think I think they're sort of like sine waves. You know, you have your ups and downs in any relationship. In any given day, any relationship can be on an upward trajectory or a downward trajectory. And those little tiny choices we make on a regular basis of whether we're going to be kind, thoughtful, grateful, or going to be selfish, petulant, ego-invested, that changes how our relationship goes on at, 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 at any moment. But I do think, really, our relationships are so much about ourselves. And that sounds like a crazy, egotistical, self-centered thing to say, but I do think our relationships, the quality of those relationships determine the quality of our lives and vice versa. So every single relationship that you are in, the way that you connect with those people is, is, creates who you are. But you're, and I was just, as you're, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking that's true. I mean, who you are also creates the relationship, like yes. you have to, you say it, it doesn't really sound egotistical, not to me anyway. Well, it is if, you're just being, <laughs> if you think it's all about you, but it is all about you. It is all about you. And yeah. so how can we make it all about you being a healthy thing so that it's all about you in a good way so that you're going to make good choices in your relationship, not it's all about you and you're a narcissist and, you know, everything is, has to be your way. Well, because it, tends, it, it, it depends on which part of you you focus on. If, again, if it's the, if it's the ego-invested um, willful getting what you want then it's a bad thing if you realize it's about growth and and growth is in a spiritual growth and 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 emotional growth is really always about getting rid of those ego investments and if you realize every relationship you're in is an opportunity to go to your higher self to connect on a deeper level to um to put aside that ego investment then then it's about you in a good way Okay, so you talk about in the book identifying your authentic self, which is what we're talking about. How do you, I mean, Lisa, how do you do it? I mean, people are listening, you know, the average Joe and Josephine, and they are thinking, well, you know, you're a writer, a New York Times bestselling writer, you're married to a famous husband, you're kind of like a power couple, or you are a power couple, but 
So what would be your problem? I mean, how... Oh, my gosh, I have so many. I don't think we have enough time to talk about all my problems, but well, one of the tools I use to, to come to grips with my problems is a, is a, um, it's a non-judgmental self-observation technique that was developed by Gurdjieff, and it's called The Work. And it's really about stepping outside of your habitual response and just seeing how you are highly reactive, not you, but one is, and certainly myself, in situations that are almost controlled by your environment. So for me, it's an example in your life. Put that, because that's a a great description. Give us an example in your everyday life how that works for you. Well, for example, I'll be having an argument with my husband, and I will, there's a part of me that can detach from that argument and watch it. And without saying this is bad or good, you're right and he's wrong, or you're wrong and he's right, just to observe and say, well, now you're angry. Well, actually, now what you're feeling is hurt and vulnerable, not necessarily angry, but you're showing angry because of that. So it's almost like self-analysis while you're going through any kind of activity, but specifically emotional reactive activity. And um, just to be able to step back and watch it, you you start to see that there is part of you that is not invested in that reactivity. And when you can, when you don't feel so identified with the reactivity, you don't feel like if that goes away, you will die because that is you. When you see that you are something apart from that, you can be the observer. Then you can start to change because you don't have to defend your actions and responses and reactions. So you have to practice that because I think that that's a, that's a really good way of detaching yourself, you're saying, from getting... Um, involved or getting enmeshed in this crazy, and it can be crazy because you may be arguing about something that seemingly isn't even that important. Uh, you know, one of you was supposed to, you know, pick your daughter or son up at the baseball game and you both made appointments for something else and you can't go. And, well, you said you were going to do it. You said, you know, I mean, that's an example. Uh, but you want to be able to immediately, before the argument gets too far, be able to step outside and say, hey, what's happening here? Almost like therapizing yourself. Right. Well, one of the things I've learned after, you know, much, much trial and error, error is that no argument is ever what you think the argument is about. There's always another level. There's always something deeper going on. It's never about taking the trash out. No, <laughs> it never is. You're right. But that's but we get embroiled in those kinds of arguments, most couples, I would say, yeah. every day, all the time. And we somehow aren't able to step outside of it. So how did you begin to be able to do this? I mean, at what point did you have a crisis? Like you said, this is, you know, I mean, you've been married for a long time. And at some point, like, I have to do something because I'm married. I love him. He loves me. But we're, you know, we're fighting. We're wasting our, we're giving energy to that which we don't want to grow. That's another uh, kind of mantra that I live by. But um, was there a, a point at which you said, Hey, I have to take a look at myself, my marriage, my relationship. Well, there was not a specific singular incident that, you know, that turned me around um, or us around. And, and truthfully, we haven't figured it all out. You know, everybody's marriage has their struggles and, and difficult points. And, and we still argue, usually about the same things, which is so ridiculous. But um, it's something that we try to be aware of and something that we try to approach more consciously and and again it's it's not it, it, this is a path we've been on for a long time um i think part of it is that we're both very curious people and we're always looking for 
the next level and going deeper. So both of us read a lot, um, and both of us try to live by the ideas and the ideals that resonate for us. So it's it's evolving. I want to anybody who's just tuning in or just listening. Um, I'm Lisa Oz, who's the the uh, wife of Dr. Mehmet Oz, and what. Uh, was a tr- what attracted you to each other in the beginning? Oh my goodness! Well, <laughs> for me, it was it was instantaneous, and it was almost like a recognition. Um, I had before I met him, I had been having these dreams about this guy that ended up looking exactly like Mehmet, and knowing that he was um, the person I was going to spend the rest of my life with. I was living in France with, and I was living in France, and kept having these dreams, and I assumed it was some French boy. Um, and then I met him at a dinner, and I looked at him, and, and there was instant recognition. It was, oh, my gosh, you're my French boy, but you happen to be Turkish. Um, and knew at that moment that that he was the one for me. Um, and it was he very strange. <laughs> so I, with him, I think it took a little longer. He didn't, I don't think he thought he was going to marry me, the, the within the first microsecond that we connected, but we did start dating right away, and he asked me to marry him six months later, and we got married three three years later. So, And how long have you been married? Uh, almost 26 years. 26 years, and yeah. that's a lot of time today in this day and age. And you have four children. We do. Yeah. yeah. So uh, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with your husband, we've been talking about that, and the relationship with this a spiritual relationship with whoever that spirit is for each individual. What about the relationship with children? How does that fit in? Well, it's 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 an incredible ground again for personal growth and kids kids are just wonderful little mirrors for our own behavior. And again, every relationship starts with your relationship with yourself. So with children it's even more emphasized because kids will model exactly what you do. You can tell them whatever you want to tell them, but if you want your kids to be honest, have integrity, character, compassion, live consciously in the world, you have to do those things. You can't just tell them don't tell a lie because if you're lying to them or to or they see you lying to someone else, that's what they're going to that's what they're going to do as well. So, they're they're having children is actually a wonderful way to work on your own behavior. Um but for me, I also think that in those relationships, like long-term spouses, like extended family, like our children, we tend to think that they are there and we don't have to worry about them anymore and move, put our, our effort into cultivating the more difficult relationships or the newer relationships. And I really do think that we need to be more compassionate with our children, be more aware of our children, put more attention into that, into really connecting with them because you know, I, I'm guilty of it as well. I'll be listening to my son will come home and want to tell me about school and I'll be doing my emails and going, mm-hmm, 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 and not really giving him the the, the FaceTime, the one-on-one, the, the active listening that he needs. So I, I think I, this is, you know, this is, maybe it's a, it's not, it is a new point, I think, in this sort of age of, uh, the internet communication, and I, I think that's a really that's a great point, um, Lisa, because there's so many distractions, and there's so many distractions available to all of us. And uh, just an example of what you're talking about, I walk four miles a day in my neighborhood, a suburban neighborhood, and of course, while I'm walking, I'm always looking into people's houses and I'm <laughs> looking to see what they're doing because I'm curious. 
And I see during the day, or if it is during the day, a lot of these young mothers will be at home, but sitting in the in the yard or the backyard or wherever they, and they'll have the, the the kids will be there, but they have their computer, they yeah. have their cell phone, and I watch them, and then even though physically they're there, they are on their computers, they are talking on their phones, they're either doing business or maybe socializing, but they are not connected with their kids. It's very weird. We're not where we are anymore. You know, there's that Buckaroo Banzai um, uh, quote. I think it's wherever you are, um, wherever you are, there you are. It's something crazy yeah, and very obvious, but I don't think we are anymore where we are. We're always somewhere either thinking about the past or the future, and we are connecting in a superficial way to someone who isn't next to us whether it's on Facebook or Blackberries or telephones, rather than being with the people that are, are right next to us. So yes. I do think it's a huge problem, not just for kids, but especially for kids because they're so vulnerable and they do so rely on us for um, emotional input because that's, that's how they are going to connect with the world, the way that we connect with them. So if, if we're focused on something else, how can we expect them to be anything other than that? Yeah, in I want to lives. talk more about this because I think this is a, 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 you know, a point that we really need to address. As you say, not just with children, but re- it, it affects all of our relationships, our significant relationships. So we're going to take a short break. Uh, Lisa Oz, author of Us, will be back in a few minutes. Don't go away. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio, and I'm talking to Lisa Oz, a housewife living in New Jersey and a author of, uh, best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author of Us. Uh, and the book is all about relationships, transforming ourselves and, re- and the relationships that matter most. 
And Lisa, I think we've gotten on to something because when we're talking about relationships today and now, we are so profoundly affected by cell phones, Internet, Facebook, tweeting, Twittering. It affects our primary relationships with our partners, our spouses, our children, our friends, and I don't think in such a good way. We're not, we're connecting, but we really aren't connecting in a personal one-on-one. And you started, we're talking about the kids. Give me, you know, you how you grew up, how I grew up too. I had girlfriends. I spent a lot of time with my friends, one-on-one, groups of girlfriends. But for your kids, it's very different. How is it different? Well, it is in that, I, you know, I, I did have my friends over all the time, and we would hang out, or we talk on the phone. My daughter, she'll have five conversations going on at once via her computer. She has actually two computers that sit on her bed, and she's got four different screens open and her cell phone. So she's texting on the cell phone to one person. She's video chatting with another. She's instant messaging with a third on another computer. And none of them are real substantial conversations. Um, it's And I, I'm afraid that it's making us a society, and, I, and I'm, I worry for our kids, of people who who live on the surface, who never develop the ability to relate on a deep level. And, I, and you, I know that they will eventually, because we all have to, but if we're spending all of our time in these very shallow relationships and not putting the time into cultivating the deep ones and connecting in a really significant way, um, I, I think we're losing and missing out. I think, Lisa, too, it's very isolating. It appears to be very connecting, as if you're not isolated. Because as you say, she's got five things going on at once. She's IMing, she's texting, she's emailing. Um, So the feeling that you get from it is that you are very, the feeling that you get is that you're connected, but you're not really dealing with the emotional part of the relationship. Do you ever talk to her about it? Is there anything to say? Or what would you say? I mean, is she your youngest? Uh, no, my I was, my son is the youngest. I do, you know, I walk in and make her turn everything off and do her homework. And she's actually a great student, so she does her homework while she's having all these conversations. She's doing her homework too, which is even worse. But you know, it's funny because when you were talking, it made me think of something. I think that that there are. I think we live in a kind of a holographic universe, and and there's this this um, uh, principle of as as above so below. And I do think that everything is kind of related. And the way that our relationships are right now with this sort of superficial feeling of being connected, but actually being hollow and empty is the same feeling we get from eating junk food. We've stripped all of our food of its of its purpose and its nutrients, which is sort of like the deep connection in a relationship. And now we'll eat things like potato chips or you know any kind of processed food where we feel like we're we're full, but we actually we actually have a toxic hunger because we're not getting the nutrition that we need. And, and it's the same way in we're not getting. Lisa, that's a great example because I think we're also not getting. We're not getting the flavor. There's no flavor. So then we stuff ourselves on enormous quantities of food because we aren't getting the the nuances of the flavor of the food because it's it's all puffed up and and not only does it not have nutrients, it's made full of chemicals and all those kinds of things. So it is. It's the same way with 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 food. Uh, you probably could go. It's it's. You know, I think in, in our society, it's probably the same way with with most of the things. You know, well, I was just going to say, I think with sex, it's the same way. Yes. You know, you have a super saturated sexual society where everything you see from advertisements to television shows, or not not. Well, I'm not even just talking about 
porn, but everything is is very is very graphically sexual. And yet, you know, if you if you talk, my husband's on his show. One of his favorite topics is the sexual famine. People are not connecting with each other um, in a real, intimate, satisfying way. So it's it's fascinating if you look across the board. We've isolated pleasure from its form and purpose, and so I think we are kind of living in a hollow, vapid life and lifestyle. Yeah, and kind of the, you know, you mentioned sex. Yeah, it's sex, sex, sex. But what about sensuality? That's the piece that's missing. It's like the flavor with the food or the the connection with with a person and being on the net. It's the same thing with sex. uh, It's, it's, as you say, I mean, sex is everywhere. And, you know, young girls are dressed up with their, you know, skirts up to their, you know, thigh, above their thighs. And, uh, but what about sensuality? That's missing. We are not a sensual society. We, we do not have sensual kinds of relationships. And that's a huge piece, I think, that's missing. Yeah. So now what do we do? You're the expert. Well, I, well, again, I think it's about, well, first, I think the, 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 the underlying cause of a lot of this is that we don't want to feel and that we use any of these things that we've been talking about, whether it's the Internet or telephones, any of those superficial connectors, or sex uh, in, that, in that non-connected, non-sensual way, or food that is not nourishing our bodies, we use all of those to numb ourselves. Those are our soft addictions. Those are the th- things we turn to when we're bored or frustrated or angry, when we don't want to be uncomfortable, and that discomfort, I think, is our inner voice that's saying, we need to do something differently. Our life isn't working. We need to get real. We need to know who we are. We need to know what's important to us, what's our purpose, what gives our life meaning. That inner voice makes us uncomfortable, and we shut it up with all these soft addictions. So I, I think the way to start is to spend so every day a little bit of time with yourself. It can be a meditation. It can be prayer. It can be just quiet, reflective time, 10 minutes a day, but let that inner voice be heard so, and, and without squelching it um, so that you can begin to know what, what you need to do in your life without numbing yourself. Do you think that you talk about meditation, taking some time out, which we all need to do as adults and as children, I guess, yeah. as we're describing it, um, do you think it, that that would be something that what, that they would do in like in schools, for instance, to help the children to be able to kind of make this disconnect from all this stuff, but be able to sit and be calm and and meditate? Um, because you have to teach, you know, you have to start with people when they're young. You know, yeah. I mean, you can ch- make changes as you get older, but it's more difficult. So you, uh, my theory is that you really have to start with with young people. You have to start when they're eight, ten, you know, before puberty. Well, my husband and I started a foundation called Health Corps, and we're in 50 schools now across the country. And it's a three-pronged um, health education. We talk about how to eat, how to read food labels, for example. A lot of these kids don't even know what they're eating. Um, how to move, because sports programs have been cut out of a lot of schools. They don't even have PE anymore, so we give them pedometers. We teach them how to, to walk more, how to incorporate movement into their life. But the third prong is mental resilience, and it's how to cope with stress, because if you can't, if you don't have emotional health, you don't have, you can't have physical health. So we, we do teach them meditation. We go in, into these classrooms and teach the kids yoga and meditation as two tools to cope with stress. 
Health Corps. So this is across the country that you're doing this? It is. Um, I, I'm not sure how many. I believe we're in 11 states, but we're in, in 50, 50 schools. So how would we connect or how would listeners connect to, to, to Health Corps? Well, they can go to healthcorps.org. It's um, H-E-A-L-T-H-C-O-R-P-S dot org. And, and they can what, learn all about the program. And so, at least, what kind of criteria does the school have to have? You're right. All these schools are, like, you know, not having their sports pro all the things, sports programs, things that help your emotional well-being. And so this this is great because this is a substitute for that or in, a, in addition to it, I guess. Um, well, most of the schools that we are in are schools where it's an underprivileged society. So it's kids who may be at risk, kids who um, are in areas that, that where they wouldn't have exposure to the kind of health information that, that they may get in a more affluent area. So we, we try to go into urban areas or rural areas where, where kids don't have access to, um, to good, healthy ideas. Uh, so that's really the only qualification. We send we send teachers, and we we actually it's based on the Peace Corps, and that you take young um, recent college grads because we believe in a mentoring type system where it's peer to peer because kids relate much better to people who are closer in age than rather than listening to some you know fifty year old pontificate about yeah. the benefits <laughs> of vitamin D. Um, I'm not referring to my husband necessarily, but <laughs> I didn't think you were. <laughs> <laughs> kids respond well to other kids. So we send these recent college grads into schools. They can volunteer for one or two years, and then they they mentor the kids in, in this health education. And, and really, it's all about need. That's, that's how we, we get into schools. That's a that's a fantastic that's a great idea. I, I think that that's there are probably more and more of this kind of thing. Is is that well, of course, this funding for schools gets the. Uh, taken away and so all of these key core kinds of programs no longer exist. Um, it's been great having you on the show today. We have oh, to say goodbye, you. but you're doing so many things. Um, I don't know what you could be on to next to do, <laughs> but I still want to recommend this book, Us, Lisa Oz, Transforming Ourselves in the Relationships that Matter Most. And you can go to healthcore.com or .org? .org. Dot org for more information about uh, Lisa and uh, Dr. Oz and what they're doing across the country to improve relationships, health, eating, all of those kinds of things. Um, we'll have to have you on again. Always great talking to you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, great. Thanks. Lisa Oz. I'm Catherine Fox, your social worker with the microphone. Don't go away. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. I'll be back in a minute. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. 
would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Vasily is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me now is Ann Kramer. Uh, she's the author of It's Always Personal. Uh, go ahead, cry at work. Uh, corporate culture, it has been said, has long ignored the fact that we can't check our feelings at the office door. Why it's high time to get rational about emotions in the workplace. You could, so when was the last time you cried at work? Well, I, ne- I have been always told you're not supposed to cry at work. You are supposed to leave those emotions at the door once you come into work. Uh, but uh, apparently, according to a study that Anne has done, um, maybe that's not such a good idea. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Anne. Hi, Catherine. Nice to be here. Well, you know, you raise a terrific point. When uh, I went to work, it was always, you know, kind of man up and whatever you do, don't let them see you cry. And when I did my research, I was uh, stunned to discover three or four different things. Um, Most importantly, people at all levels of management um, reported that they had cried, so that the kind of conventional wisdom that if you cry, you can't possibly, um, you know, be leadership material, simply didn't hold water. And in fact, a lot of the um, people reported that people who showed that kind of emotion, that kind of empathy or compassion, and led from the heart, were viewed as in fact better leaders. Um, but another fascinating thing that emerged was that people who reported that they had cried during the last year also um, did not say that they were unhappy in their jobs, that crying was an occasional thing that might happen um, that was sort of on a day when there was just kind of one straw too many, and it was our, their natural reset button. And, you know, it happened, and they moved past, and it was fine. So it was okay. Well, what I'm going to add, well, I, I want to address that. <clears throat> because you know, where you cry, how you cry, and who you cry with may make a difference at work. But I do want to—I did, didn't say this in the beginning, but Anne, I mean, you teamed up with J. Walter Thompson, a uh, uh, big uh, advertising agency, mm-hmm. and you did two national polls targeting men and women between the yeah. ages of 18 and 64. So I got to give that as the preface, and you did find out that the number one thing, which I thought was—I'm not surprised, I guess—that frustration. Yes. is the dominant emotion that Americans say they feel at work. So if 73% or three-quarters of them, so if you're feeling frustrated and you're not allowed to cry or you're not allowed to get that frustration out, then what? that can't be well, see, that's, that's, the, that's the crux of the issue. And one of the things that I think that sort of uh, revolves around this conversation right now is it used to be this kind of convenient fiction that 
you know, your emotions happen at home with your family and friends, and you walked into the door of the office, and that was a supreme rational environment. Well, those boundaries have been obliterated. I mean, you know, everyone is is accessible 24-7. I don't know a single person who isn't at their office having their kids text them or IM them or, you know, contact them and parent, you know, partners in the whole thing. And then at home, of course, we're all accessible to the entire office. So navigating, figuring out how we kind of navigate those waters, how we uh, conduct ourselves in a professional way that lets us be both true to ourselves at home and at the office is a significant part of what the book is sort of exploring. And that's tough. I mean, I grew up with two brothers who were in business, and, and I, I just remember the kind of their mantra, it's, 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 it's just business. Step away, yeah. don't, be emotion, don't get emotional about it. And, of course, I'm a social worker, so that's oh, kind of, heavens, yeah. <laughs> can't do that. No. But it's, just, it's all about business. That means you, 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 know, you, you don't cry, you don't, you don't get upset, and, um, but that's not true for a lot but, of but reasons. I, no, and see, what I think it is, it's a question that, you know, it's a little bit like Goldilocks. You know, you can't do too much and you can't do too little. And what, what I try to offer in the book is this sense is that, you know, to the degree that one can be aware of um, what's simmering kind of just beneath the surface. It's like the um, dashboard on your car when the check engine light goes off. You don't have to necessarily get to the shop that afternoon, but you better do it relatively soon and your car is going to break down. I think emotions in the workplace are sort of comparable. That we could, All of us know when we're kind of reaching that point, whether we're feeling overwhelmed or kind of, you know, like we're not getting enough positive feedback or something, in that we're building to one of those um, kind of situations where our emotions might bubble out in either anger or tears. And that if we can be aware of that in advance, it's like we can take ourselves into the shop. There are different remedies that you can employ for different kinds of personality types that help you avert those moments. All right, so that's what, but let's get specific. What would you do? Because one of the things that you found, and I'm not surprised at this, that the largest differential and emotional expressiveness yeah. uh, is the gap between younger men, younger women and older men. Right. Yes. Women under 45 are 10 times more likely to cry at work than men 45 and older. And the men 45 and older also, I'm making this assumption, would tend to be upper management CEOs of companies. Right. And so that would make a difference too. Hey, it's okay if like the person, the personal assistant cries maybe, but it's not okay if the CFO starts crying. Well, no, and see, this is part of my point. Well, I, I looked at the neuroscience. To, I really wanted to understand where the prejudice or bias or stigma came from, as, particularly as it related to tears, but other things as well. And I probed the neuroscience of um, emotion between the genders, and I found out, for instance, that women's tear ducts are literally anatomically different from men's. And I had not known this. I don't know if you knew that. So that, like, a man might be feeling the exact same level of emotional distress and his eyes will only kind of well up, whereas women's tears will course down their face. I think having that kind of information is kind of is powerful in terms of that sense of younger girls maybe feeling kind of like they're the leaky ones all over the office. There's also women produce six times the amount of prolactin that men do, and prolactin's the hormone that um, we produce uh, that triggers tears. So that's different right off the bat. So you know, I think. If the older male cohort, you know, that tends to kind of not cry, and we do develop better emotional regulation skills the older we get, 
um, were to be aware of the fact of these kinds of biological underpinnings of women, they might say, okay, um, I understand this happening. Let me tell you some of the things I do. <laughs> For instance, when I'm feeling this way or that way. And instead of being like running away from it and not talking about it, people can have a conversation and figure out you know, mechanisms for themselves that help them be productive workers. So how do you take this research and incorporate it into companies, corporations, uh, medium-sized companies? What do you do with it? Well, I think one of the really interesting things is... Two minutes we have to tell us. No one's ever taught, no one's ever taught emotion regulation skills anywhere, anytime. So I would start first at the kind of almost business school level. Then as part of your orientation session, I think you might say, what, what should you do if you or a boss or a colleague gets angry? And then offer four prescriptive things. What happens when, a bo- you know, when an employee comes into your office and bursts into tears and offer four prescriptive things? And then how, you know, and then... Finally, on the and how can you create an environment where people feel safe in terms of coming in and discussing the things that are going on in their lives in this completely leaky world where everything bleeds from home into work and back and forth? Those are very practical suggestions, and I assume that some of this is being done now in certain uh, companies. No, I don't think it is. Not at all. I think what's really happened now is that because of the recession. All employee development kind of ground to a halt. Like that was viewed as this sort of extraneous thing. We don't need it. Let's focus on the bottom line. And I'm kind of suggesting that, in fact, the bottom line will be enhanced if you do take a bit of time to sort of work on your employee development. I think if you don't work on your employee development, you're not going to have a bottom line. I mean, people don't go in there or can't go in there as automatons. And because they're under such stress, they really need this more than they ever did. We have to say goodbye. This was great. I mean, I'll have to have you on again when we have more time to talk, but uh, I want to, the book, your book, you can go to Ann Kramer, and it's A-N-N-E-K-R-E-A-M-E-R.com. More information about her, about the book. It's always personal, um, and it is. Great talking to you today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I'm Catherine Sox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to Voice America Variety, World Talk Radio, The Catherine Sox Show. Hope you had a great morning. Have a good week, and uh, I'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com.